come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Hey, it is going to be, it has already been an amazing night, but I'm really excited to introduce our guest speaker for tonight. Um, walking through this series, Shipwreck, talking about relationships, he's one of the first people that came to mind. He's somebody who just by his life, the way he loves his family, the way he loves his kids, his wife, the way he loves um, strangers, the way he loves acquaintances, the way he loves friends is just so like Jesus. And when thinking about relationships and talking about relationships, this individual came to mind and I selfishly wanted to glean from his wisdom and so you get to benefit as well. But please help me welcome Taylor Bronis to the stage, to the pulpit. Taylor, we love you. Love you. And uh, bring it, bro. We're excited. He's <laughs> setting the bar real high here. I'm not sure if I can deliver on that. How are you guys doing tonight? That was good. That's good. Who's liking being on Osuna now? I like this. I like this vibe. Like, I feel like it's a little bit more intimate, feels a little bit. I just, I like the vibes. The vibes are immaculate, as the kids say. Or at least that's what they tell me they say. They probably don't. But um, I was very honored when Nick asked me to teach week two of this series, Shipwrecked. Um, you just heard it, but if you brought a Bible, please turn with me to James chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18 tonight. Um, and, and if you were here, Nick kicked off this series last week talking about how do we navigate relationships based on God's design. Um, and again, this really the, kind of the whole point of the series isn't just to talk about romantic relationships. Um, I realize, let's just be honest, perhaps some of that, that is why you are here in a young adult ministry is for romantic relationships. Uh, but regardless... Uh, we're talking about relationships, and that's what we're going to talk some more about tonight. But I, I'd like to kind of examine kind of a, a theme that's adjacent to what Nick talked about last week. And that's why relationships don't work. Why do relationships fall apart? So my talk, my, my talk for tonight is called Why Relationships Don't Work Out. And I want to show you an image that I'm sure you have seen uh, you've probably seen it in one of two contexts. Either you've seen it as a motivational picture on an Instagram account, um, or you've seen it as a meme, but I think we should have that image up here here in a second. Inside of you, there are two wolves. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that I'm sure some of you have thought that this was deep. But here's some other examples I got for you. Again, the, the reality is this image has uh, started potentially as a Cherokee legend. I doubt that. It has devolved into a meme. So here we go. This one's kind of, this one's kind of vanilla. Okay, Barbie Oppenheimer. We need to eat better. Chimp nuggies. Uh, to be honest, this was me today. Liter this is literally me today. Um, I was, uh, I was getting lunch and I realized that I hadn't eaten anything substantive. And so I got chicken at Whataburger, and I immediately regretted it. Um, but got one more. Maybe not. Well, there's one where uh, basically the, the point of that was that 
the, the meme was, it's always fun to explain a joke, um, but <laughs> where it's just like, there, inside of you are two wolves. One wonders why he got there. The other wonders why he's eating your liver. So regardless, <laughs> despite the memes, based on our teaching text tonight, um, I believe that inside of you are two wisdoms, okay? Hold the cringe. Inside of you are two wisdoms. I think there's two ways that this text presents that we can approach relationships. One leads to mutual flourishing. The other leads to mutual destruction. Mutual flourishing on one hand, mutual destruction on the other. And it's hardly, I think, a controversial statement to suggest that your generation, Gen Z, is struggling with relationships across the board. Done a lot of, a lot of reading, a lot of study about this topic over the last week, just kind of looking at where are young adults with relationships. Well, again, doesn't look good across the board. Friendships. It's looking at where a lot of young adults your age are looking at friendships. You see the, the prevalence of low-maintenance friendships, where basically the value of that friendship is simply that you don't have to put much effort into it, that there's little intentionality required, little time or effort required. A lot of young adults your age are reporting a lower number overall of the number of friends they have, but there's also an increase in friendships ending suddenly um, over divisions. Again, we live in a very politically divided age, especially 2024, this is an election year, so a lot of friendships have been a casualty of politics. So that's friendship. So things aren't looking great on the friendship side, but on the romantic side, things don't look better. You see a smaller dating pool. Um, just I saw a lot of stats where young adults like you are reporting there's a smaller dating pool. That can sometimes be just due to negative subpar experiences on dating apps, which is understandable. I think every experience on a dating app is probably subpar, but I've never used one, so I don't know. But... <laughs> But that being said, there's also a smaller number of people who are, feel willing to date just simply because it's, life is expensive right now. Eating food is expensive. So the financial capital required to sustain a date in some young adults' minds just isn't there. Part of me wants to say, well, you got to learn how to date on the cheap. My wife and I, we're experts at that. We can, we'd love to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> we're, we're very happy to, to be balling on a budget. But there are numerous reasons that young adults find difficulty in their relationships. Again, I'm talking friendships and romantic relationships. And most of them, again, to, to young adults' credit, they're, out, they're outside of you. They're external. Again, there's a lot of lingering issues, anxiety due to COVID. There's an increasing prevalence of remote work, remote learning. I'm, I'm in that same boat. I'm a remote grad student. I'm 600 miles away from my school. There's hyper-connectivity that we have via social media. So again, we're more connected than we ever have been, but we're also more disconnected than we ever have been before. But also, more commonly amongst young adult careers is just work relocation. Young adults are moving more quickly to find better jobs across the nation. But that, all that being said, I also think there's an internal factor at play. I think there's an internal factor that is sabotaging your relationships. And this isn't a new one. This isn't due to COVID. This isn't due to anything else right now. Rather, I think that this internal threat is one that's been with us since the earliest pages of human history. And that is the innate desire to leverage relationships for personal gain. The desire to be in a relationship, friendship or otherwise, to get something out of it. I'm in a relationship to receive something. 
And that might sound negative. I agree it is negative, but I promise you, and Nick can attest to this too, we're both pastors. We see this day in, day out. This dynamic is present so often. The amount of times people are in my office or on the phone with me, and this is what their relationship looks like. This is the reality. So what do we do to fix relationships? Why are they not working, but why, what can we do to fix them? Again, I think our text gives us some helpful hints. Verse 13, again, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And this verse serves as something is kind of like is James's thesis statement for the verses that are going to follow that we're going to look at. And it's a rhetorical question. James is not asking, who is wise? I don't know what that means. No, this is a rhetorical question. It's meant to kind of induce reflection. This is a rabbinic style of learning. This is deeply influenced by Hebrew wisdom literature. So again, you're probably familiar with it if you've read through Proverbs. Proverbs 31.10, a wife of noble character who can find... Or Jesus says this in Mark 3.33, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus and Solomon aren't asking the question generally. It's meant to induce reflection in the audience. And that's exactly what James is doing here. And James is going to give us a contrast between two sorts of wisdom. The wisdom of this world that he's going to define as, uh, as earthly, as unspiritual the wisdom of this world versus the wisdom that comes down from heaven. Hence, inside of you, there are two wisdoms at play. But I believe that you are at a crossroads, my friends. I believe that you are at a crossroads. The choices that you make in your relationships now, the way you approach them, the habits you build now are going to define what your relationships are going to look like for at least the next 10 years. The patterns that you are establishing, the habits you're building now in your relationships, friendships, romance, are going to impact and play out over the next decade. And I'm a little bit older than most of you, and I don't want to see so many of you make the same mistakes that, that me and my peer group did when we were your age, okay? So th there's... There are two paths that I think that you can take. We're at this crossroads here. So we're going to talk about the bad path first. I'm a bad news kind of guy first. I like to hear that first. I don't know what that says about me. But this is the first one, the cursed path. The cursed path. Why don't relationships work out? Why do we often find that friendships and romance goes down paths that we don't want to go down? The simple answer, you are the problem. It's you. It's all you, baby. You are the problem. Like, right? This is that one time you can honestly say, it's, it's me, not you. And you can actually mean it. Because um, we all know that that is used as a get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> but um, let's think about it. A couple weeks ago, uh, we went up to the Peak, which is our Calvary Youth Winter Retreat. And, um, and great time had by all. You can ask the students how fun the first night was. Um, <laughs> They might disagree, but we had a good time. The adults on the trip had a great time. But as we were finished with the fun, we were driving back to our cabin very late at night in uh, pitch black darkness. Um, my navigational skills were put to the test, Amar can um, attest to this. We were driving back, and I was very confident getting back to our cabin. It's about half a mile away from uh, where the rest of us, where the rest of the students were sleeping. And uh, I was very confident. Turn here, turn here. Oh, no, absolutely turn here. So multiple U-turns later. 
Um, multiple U-turns, which again is difficult in the pitch black. Um, I realized that I was, uh, had taken our delightful fellowship down multiple wrong turns. The problem was me, okay? So like, look at me, I, I'm the problem now. Um, Paul David Tripp says this, and one of my favorite authors, favorite books, says this, at the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family, or a forsaken friendship, you will always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he's given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. The ultimate reason that your relationships may be going down the cursed path is, in fact, because you are the problem. You are the problem. Note, and this is a disclaimer, I am not talking about the very real pain that can happen and will happen in human relationships when the other person in the relationship does something that hurts you. I'm not talking about that. That happens. That's real. I'm also not victim-blaming because the reality is in, in abusive and toxic relationships, victim-blaming is, is so common. So this is not what I'm talking about. If you're in an abusive or toxic relationship, you are not at fault for what's happening to you. If you're on the receiving end of that mistreatment, you're not at fault no matter what your abuser might say. Um, abuse is never the victim's fault. I'm not talking about that. If you're in a relationship like that, please come talk to me, come talk to our team. We wanna walk through this with you. We, we believe that you can see a better day. I'm not talking about that, okay? What I'm talking about is normal, average, normative relationships. That's what we're gonna talk about tonight. The reality is I have to have the self-awareness and the humility, according to verse 13, to admit that I am my own worst enemy. I am my own worst enemy. I am my biggest problem, okay? I do not need Satan to derail my life. Why? I got it handled, okay? I can, I'm more than capable of ruining my own life and every relationship around me. I don't need his help. The reality is, you and I, we both bring the best and worst elements of our personality to bear in a relationship. We both bring the best and worst elements to every single relationship that we form. James goes on in verse 14, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So I'm encouraging you tonight, think about your relationships. Look at the, your relationships since you finished high school. What's the general trajectory of those relationships? Friendships, romance? What's the trajectory of those relationships? How much wreckage is there in your relational past? And if you look back and see a lot of relational damage, a lot of relational wreckage, according to James, don't boast about it. Because sadly, and I, I do not understand this, but I'll, I'll often hear people talk about relational damage as though it's a badge of honor. Like, hey, cutting off that person, cutting off that family member was a rite of passage. That was a good thing. And sometimes it is. Sometimes you have to set boundaries. But the way I hear people talk about that, the fracturing of a relationship, it's almost like there's a, it's a matter of pride. Like, I'm, I'm an adult now. I've had to cut people off. I don't, think, I don't think James would like that. And, and maybe you've met this person where, again, they go to therapy a couple times and they suddenly think, okay, their three sessions with a the therapist now equates to a uh, PhD in psychology. And then they start diagnosing you. They tell you everything that's wrong with you, 
right? And that's great. Um, super fun to hear from somebody who doesn't know anything <laughs> and is not a professional. But, and oftentimes I find that those people who do that, and if you're thinking, I don't know anybody like that, it's because you're the person. Um, what's often so funny with those types of people, God bless you if that's you. I believe that Jesus loves you. Uh, we do too. But the reality is with like that, sometimes they'll be so quick to diagnose and psychoanalyze other people while being ironically unaware of a, how deeply toxic they are as a person, Okay. Don't boast about wreckage in your past. Let's take an honest and humble look at your past and current relationships. Take a look at them. Why are you in them in the first place? Or even some past relationships. Why were you in them in the first place? What got you into that relationship? If you were primarily involved in those relationships because of what you were getting from them, or the reason you stayed connected is because the benefit that you were gaining from that friendship or that dating relationship, then it may be possible that, that what defined that relationship was actually what James would call bitter envy and selfish ambition. So think for a moment, kind of if you were to graph out your relationships, you know, put them on a bar chart, a pie chart, I'm not good at math, I don't know which one is better, but... If you were to graph out your relationship, would you find that they often end for the same reasons? Is there a pattern that you see being lived out over and over again? Do you see a, a level of toxicity and bitterness and regret play out over and over? And the good news is there's hope. If that is you, if you're just like, wow, man, I'm starting to see a pattern emerge in my relationships. I'm not up here to say that I have it all together or that you're somehow so deeply broken. There's hope. There is hope for us. There's good news because you can find a different path. It's also important to note, bitterness, selfish ambition, those have been the default settings for human relationships since the fall, okay? So you're fighting human nature. You're fighting human nature. And in fact, these things aren't even earthly in origin because verse 15 is what James says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Demonic. The first human relationships that we see recorded in scripture, so think Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, show this same dynamic of envy and ambition at play. This is what it says in Genesis 3. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Victim blaming, blame shifting, right? It's her fault, not mine. That's her fault. I'm the victim here. Or then the next chapter, you can skip over Genesis 4. Cain and Abel, their children, the Lord looked up with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. He killed him. Envy, selfish ambition, this cursed cycle define the earliest relationships that we have record of, and it has played out in every single human relationship since the garden. Every relationship has had this dynamic, and the serpent, Satan, has gleefully been watching and inflaming and exacerbating these negative tendencies that we have. The default path 
the default path, the normal normative path for human relationships to follow is the cursed path. And the role that we play in these relationships is one of the conqueror. And you might think, I don't feel like a conqueror. I haven't, you know, annexed any territories recently. (laughs) But what does a conqueror do, right? What does a conqueror do? They exploit others. They dominate others. They manipulate others. It's saying internally when you get into a relationship, hey, I'm going to use you, see what I can get from you. And as soon as the benefit to me is over, this relationship is over. Manipulation, that's what a conqueror does. Talia Feister says this, speaking of specifically romantic relationships in this day and age, she says this, I think that we treat partnership, relationships, or marriage as a potential for growth. And so by maximizing your own potential, you are investing in yourself through partnership. Whether it's all about the individual, self-improvement, and self-optimization, this is the idea of maximizing your potential. That is how she defines the benefits of marriage in 2024. Or to say it more succinctly, as James does, bitter envy and selfish ambition. And this is the inevitable result. Verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This is the cursed path. This is why our relationships do not work. They so often fail or they do not gain traction or they just don't take off. We have fallen prey to the same dynamics that were at play in our earliest ancestors. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. We're we're playing out the same story over and over and over and over again. But the good news is there's hope. There is hope. It is possible to reverse the curse in our relationships. There is another path that we can follow at this crossroads and it's this. It's the cruciform path, the cruciform path. So um, a couple months ago, my wife and I, we were celebrating our ninth wedding anniversary, which we're loving. Can't believe we're nine years plus into this. Um, But we were celebrating our anniversary, and we had planned to go to this one restaurant that we love. They have great food, great prime rib. It's exceptional. Go to Savoy. It's awesome. They don't sponsor me, but it's great, and that was our plan. We're going to go there. We're going to have a great meal. Unfortunately, we did not check that they were closed that day. So that was kind of a huge bummer to find out at 5 o'clock. So we're scrambling, trying to find, okay, what are some other fancy restaurants that probably are open and and still have reservations left? And we we find that we had heard tell of this restaurant called Antiquity. Raise your hand if you've ever been there. One person, two people, great. Well, hey, <laughs> go there. It is expensive, so maybe save up for it. Um, that's We had to definitely do that. Uh, but it's great. But it was difficult to get into. Had great ratings on Google. Um, so we call it, you, literally, they don't have an online reservation. You just have to call and hope you make it through. Had to call 15 times. The line was busy. Finally talked to this very, very rude, um, like, Italian gangster-sounding man. <laughs> but I got my reservation. We got in, and guess what? It was the hardest restaurant that I've ever had to get into in my life. It took longer than it should have to get into that restaurant, but we found out that was the best dining experience I think we've ever had. It was infinitely superior than Savoy, okay? Both of those restaurants can sponsor me, please. I'd like that. But (laughs) both of those restaurants were great, but we found out that the unexpected path was actually the far better one. Look at the last couple verses with me, 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest 
of righteousness. And I'll just be honest, I read that list and it sounds great. Sounds awesome when we're in a, in, a, in a once a week sanitized church environment. That sounds awesome. I can sign on to that. But when I think about this, how do I actually apply those things in my relationships? That sounds impossibly hard. Like that sounds kind of just idealistic, to be honest. I read that. It sounds great. But I wonder, and maybe you're wondering too, how on earth does this work? How can this work? Is this realistic? The answer, it's not. It's not realistic. This doesn't work. Okay? This doesn't work. What's said here in verses 17 and 18 don't work. Before you think, what is going on? The fact is, James himself states, this wisdom is not of earthly origin. It's expected that this bar is too high. This is a target that we cannot hit. Suffice to say, only one person in human history has ever perfectly embodied these values, and that's, that's Jesus, that's Christ. Jesus is the only one. He is the very embodiment of wisdom and virtue. He's the divine logos, the word who came down from heaven to teach us errant humans a new way to be human, a new way to live. Only Jesus has embodied that. So again, if you're, you're navigating drama in your friend group, or you're navigating a, an argument between your boyfriend or your girlfriend... You're thinking, how am I supposed to do this? You can't. You can't. You, based on your default settings as a human, you cannot do this. You cannot operate this way. But the good news, again, is that Jesus has come down with wisdom from heaven, with a wisdom that we couldn't find on our own, and he's offering it to us now. But if we want... What Jesus is offering, we want to experience that, we have to be willing to follow him where he's going. I'll say that again. If we want the wisdom that he offers, we have to be willing to go with him where he's going. We have to follow him. Mark 8, 34 says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We have to follow him down the cruciform path. That literally means cross-shaped the cruciform, the cross-shaped path. That is the path to wisdom. And when we rely on Jesus' empowerment that he gives us through the Spirit, we orient our lives around Jesus' example, then even our most tenuous, our most fraught relationships can have new life breathed into them. So even that relationship that you think is, is, is on life support and isn't going to last much longer, I believe this. That if you truly, intentionally try to image Jesus in this way and you reflect these characteristics, there's hope. There is hope. But I'm a practical guy. I'm that type of person. I'm just like, man, that's a great, like, theoretically, but, like, what do you want me to do? Um, practically, how do we do this? How are we supposed to walk along the cross-shaped path in our relationships? And James, he lists six adjectives in verse 17. Um, that describe what this true heavenly worship looks like. And I'll be honest, they're kind of self-explanatory. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on each one of them. In fact, I actually just really want to zone in on two of them. The first one is peace-loving. Peace-loving. And to be peace-loving means that you need to eschew the role of the conqueror. You need to leave that behind and, in fact, embrace the mantle of the peacemaker. Wow. I'm not here for what I can get, what I can gain. I'm not here to exploit you. I want to make peace. I want to be a peacemaker. Because again, the conqueror, they enrich themselves, they exalt themselves 
based on other people. They get what they, what other people have, they want for themselves. That's what a conqueror does in a relationship. But a peacemaker, a peace-loving person, serves others and they work for the common flourishing of all the people involved. They're in it for the others. They want peace. Peacemakers seek resolution, not, not victory. They're not looking to win an argument. They're looking, how do we resolve this difference? How do we resolve this fight? That's what a peacemaker does. And on a weekly basis, I see individuals and I see couples in my office as a pastor. And their relationships are so often colored by this never-ending struggle where one party is trying to win over the other. Sometimes they try to bring me into it. They bring me into it, right, Nick? Like they bring you into it thinking, I'm going to get the pastor on my side so he can tell my husband to, to, to listen to this or vice versa, right? And it's, it's, it's frustrating in the moment, but it's just sad to see relationships follow this same path. But ex for example, again, let, let's make this practical. One person routinely plays the victim to escape accountability. One or both people perceive any criticism leveled as a personal attack. And so often what I see a lot is where two people are at odds and then they bring in backup. They call in backup. They call in people who are not involved in the situation to back them up, to gang up on the other person. And oftentimes, whether that results in just one person feeling ganged up on, more often than not, they just find that their reputation has been damaged because the whispers have trickled across. And the damage is already done. When these things are taking place in any relationship, it means that the parties involved are not fighting for peaceful resolution. If what I just said describes what you are doing, you are not fighting for resolution, you are trying to win. You see the person you are at odds with as an opponent to be defeated, and you may resort to whatever needs to be done so that you come out on top. Or maybe you're, the, you're on the other side of that. It's worth noting that the peacemaker of verse 18, I think we can sometimes have a wrong idea of what it means to be a peacemaker. I think we tend to think that being a peacemaker means I just keep the peace. I try to maintain the status quo so that everybody's just kind of, you know, kind of in, you know, inauthentically happy with each other, right? That's not being a peacemaker. That's being a keeper of the peace. That's not a peacemaker. Because another toxic dynamic I see present in relationships across the board, but admittedly, I see them at play a lot in young adult relationships, is this passive-aggressive conflict avoidance. We're just not going to talk about it. We're just going to pretend that everything's fine. And hey, one person says they want to talk, I'm not even going to answer that. I'm not going to hammer that out. We're just going to pretend that everything's fine, even though we all know it's not. Passive-aggressive conflict avoidance, that is not keeping the peace. Okay, there, there ain't no peace to keep at that point. In fact, this is something I have had to learn. I am naturally conflict-averse. I do not like it. Sometimes if I have a really difficult conversation coming up, it tears me up for like days in advance. Okay, So I'm not saying this is somebody who loves conflict. I hate it. But I've learned over my life, conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, is it negative? Oftentimes, of course. Oftentimes, conflict can be harmful, but I've actually found even in my own life and my own relationships, conflict can actually be the catalyst 
for personal growth and relational growth if you approach it properly. Walking along the cruciform path demands that we actually embrace conflict when it's necessary. We need to embrace conflict, not run away from it. But at the same time, don't run into it, again, like a conqueror, because you know people like that too, who they love any fight. They're going to run into it headlong. That's not positive either. We're a peacemaker. We're actively involved in the conflict, but we're seeking to bring it to a resolution that is good for everybody, that is healthy for everybody. That is what a peacemaker does. We need to embrace conflict when it's necessary, but we need to go into it with the mindset, I'm not here for my own agenda. I'm here for what's right. I'm here for what's true. I'm here for what's best for the flourishing of everybody, not just my own personal interests. Our goal must be a resolution where both parties emerge healthier. Not where one person emerges with less and I feel really vindicated because that feels great in the moment. Can I just say that? It's great to win an argument. The damage that that results, though, usually isn't worth it. Be a peacemaker, peace loving. The other adjective I want to focus on is the word considerate. My word in the NIV says considerate. Your word may say gentle. This is a Greek word, epiakes, which my lexicon, I'd look it up, defines as this, because I think it's actually a lot more nuanced than gentle or considerate even actually go. This is what it says, not insisting on every right or letter of law or custom, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant. It's much deeper than just being considerate or gentle. It's not insisting on your rights at every given moment. This is what one of my favorite commentators, Scott McKnight, says this in his commentary on on James. He said this is what the word means, what it looks like in application. He says, the believer no doubt remembers moments when his or her honor has been assaulted or called into question. And so the gentle person, the considerate person, will not only drop the moment from memory, learn from the situation, and strive to improve, but will also work to create peace in a non-combative manner. That's a tall order. Because here's the deal. My wife can attest to this. My default setting is when I feel criticized, I go into defense attorney mode. Okay? Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. But God's working on it. Marriage is a beautiful, sanctifying environment for me. <laughs> but I, that's, that's, not, that's not my default setting. When I feel attacked, when I feel insulted, I go for blood. And that's not good. In order to be considerate, to be gentle, not insisting on your rights at every given moment towards the other person in your relationship, you have to exhibit a level of commitment. Commitment towards them. And I, again, as I do a lot of research, looking into a lot of things, I don't think it's uncharitable to say your generation struggles with commitment. Okay? And here's the deal. Again, I get it. Commitment's scary. It involves risk. Okay? That's the whole reason why people don't like to commit. It involves risk. I'm giving over control of something to something outside myself. I get it. Commitment is scary, but it's essential. Every relationship requires commitment if you want it to flourish. If you cannot stay committed to a relationship, you are not going to see that relationship last. It requires commitment. 
But at the same time, if your only commitment to a given relationship only goes as far as the benefit you're deriving from it, then friends, that's a red flag. That's an ick, okay? I'm trying to keep up. I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> this, is what, uh, this is what Gail Itor says. This is, he's a secular thinker. He, he's not a believer that I'm aware of. He says his friendship is an intimate connection that strengthens with trust, vulnerability, and intimacy, often requiring one to care for another person and at times prioritize the other person over oneself. The only effort model that can truly build and maintain a healthy friendship is a hundred-zero split, meaning you put effort into the friendship and expect nothing in return. Even secular psychologists in this era of narcissism that we see so prevalent, a secular psychologist and thinker is saying the best way for a friendship to last is when you determine I'm going to commit to this person no matter what. Even if I get nothing out of this friendship, I'm going to choose to be a good friend. That is what it means to be a peacemaker. That is what it means to be considerate. That is what it means to embody the wisdom that comes down from heaven because that is what Jesus did. No, no, love has no greater man than this that a man should lay down his life for his friends. Jesus didn't get anything out of dying for us, by the way, <laughs> right? But he did it anyway because he loved us. James says again, verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And I think that he's echoing what he maybe heard his older brothers say in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God relationships, your relationships will work. Not perfectly, because you're not perfect, but relationships work when we commit to being peacemakers, when we stop being conquerors, when we go to a relationship looking for what we can give, not just what we can get. Again, there are things you get in a relationship. I'm not saying that, that that's, a, that's part of it. It is a reciprocal relationship, okay? You are going to get things, but if you're going into the relationship for those things, thinking, how can I get these things from them at their expense? It's not going to work. You're going to end up hurt, and so are they. We need to be peacemakers in our relationship. The next time you're faced with conflict in your relationships, maybe you are facing that, you're navigating that right now, don't take the cursed path of self-vindication or the, the passive-aggressive avoidance of conflict. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Lay, listen well. Shut up, okay? Especially men in here, shut up, okay? Listen well, lay your ego aside, leave defensiveness at the door, and work for the betterment of the other person. Be comfortable with the other person taking a W in that argument because you're more interested in peace. You're more interested in the flourishing of the whole relationship. And when you do those things, when I do those things, just as our Lord did, for us, I think that our relationships are going to look better. They're going to look healthier. But it starts with commitment. It starts with committing to humility and putting the needs of the other person above us. So again, in essence, we need to deny ourselves to take up our cross and just do what Jesus did, which was love people at his own expense. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. The band can come back up. But... Um, I just sense this, and maybe just as we're praying, we're going to do a little bit more worship here in a moment, but maybe just talking about relationships, especially broken relationships, maybe you just sense that there's some reconciliation that needs to happen. Um, so as we pray, as we worship, 
Send that text. If they're in this room, go talk to them. Because one thing we also need to do, I didn't really touch on it tonight, but we need to be people of forgiveness because there has been relational harm. You are the problem. <laughs> but at the same time, so is the other person. People who, uh, again, Paul David Tripp says this, that people who are sinful tend to react sinfully to being sinned against. So maybe in here, you're not just simply dealing with your own sin. You're, you hurt and you've been victimized by the sin of another. Then maybe it's time to exercise forgiveness. Okay? Or, as Jesus would say in Matthew 5, if you remember when you're at the altar about to offer your gift, which in this case is the gift of praise that we're about to give God, you remember a brother or sister who has something against you. You're supposed to stop what you're doing, stop the worship in that case, and you go out and you make it right. You open that bridge again. So I'm going to encourage you, if that needs to happen tonight, then do it. Don't leave here tonight without at least extending that olive branch or reestablishing that, that line of communication if you feel there's a level of guilt or regret with that. So we're going to pray and we're going to worship. Sound good? Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. God, we are so messed up. We are so deeply broken. And every relationship we have exhibits that brokenness. Um, thank you for not just leaving us to our own devices. You... You intervened in history. You sent your son to become one of us, to show us a better way, to demonstrate at the very cost of his life a better way to live. So God, we want to experience life to the full. We're tired of the enemy coming to steal, kill, and destroy in the midst of our relationships. We want life. We want it to the full. We want it more abundantly, God. So I pray that that would start tonight. I pray that our relationships, our friendships would look better tonight than they did even when we walked in here, God. But we thank you beyond everything else for your mercy, your compassion, and your grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.